Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now, I'm pleased to say, joining us through the quarter as well to really keep us up to speed on what's been happening with volatility is Dean Kernett, Macro Risk Advisors founder and CEO, joins us now. Dean, what a quarter it's been for vol. We had the technical vol shock of a month ago, and we still seem to be trying to clear that shock of a month ago. Why, Dean? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great way to frame it, is that the, this inverse VIX uh, meltdown that occurred uh, right at the beginning of February uh, has come and gone. That trade is de- deleveraged. Uh, and so you've still got tremendous amount of, uh, of volatility uh, in, in equity markets specifically. Um, and uh, it's just so much different than 2017. So it's telling you that there's just a lot of tension. I, I would frame it as follows. Um, you talked about uh, uh, bond yields uh, just before. Um, so, so you've got bond prices rallying as stock prices are now faltering a little bit. But in the in the days before the inverse VIX unwind, um, one of the sources of instability was rising bond yields. Remember the the days before the XIV yeah. uh, imploded, you had a a couple of uh, sessions in which uh, bond yields went up a lot, and folks were getting very very worried about inflation, the Fed's response, and that was destabilizing for stock prices. So all in all, uh, you have a situation where um, movements in bond prices either to the high side or the low side t- seem to be uh, not a good thing uh, for, for equities. And one of our core tenets at, at Macro Risk Advisors has been that the equity market is, is basically short volatility on the bond market. <clears throat> if, you, if you have a situation in which bond, bond yields are stable, um, that's probably good for risk assets. It, it suggests a, uh, an environment in which you can take risk. But if um, either there's too much growth or too little growth, the yep. equity market's having trouble digesting it. Dean, there's a really interesting thing happening, though, that the equity vol has has remained isolated to equity vol. It hasn't yep. bled out into other asset classes. Now, I would have expected one of two things to happen, for it to either bleed or settle down, uh, um, neither of which has happened. Yeah. So so how is this going to evolve in the coming months as you see things playing out? Right. It's a great point. It's, this is a uh, incredibly US-centric risk environment. So if you look at all the cross-asset corollaries, whether it's FX vol, uh, or if you even look at um, certain spread relationships, look at S&P volatility versus Euro stocks implied volatility, there's actually a premium for S&P. It's very rare to have this happen. So as you know, very US equity-centric. Um, it can settle down. Uh, you know, you know, if if the daily moves in the S and P start to settle down, then the VIX is going to come down. Those those two things are going to act in tandem. Um, on a on a less optimistic note, you could say that um, the the old adage, when the U S catches a cold, uh, uh, when the, when the U S sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. So if you're seeing something um, start in the U S as a as a lack yeah. of stability, it tends to at least potentially broaden to other asset classes and geographies. Does a guy like you? Game gauge judge the distance of the dots from the market. The Fed dots. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's important. Uh, I think uh, is it moving right now? Because to me, John Farrell helped me here because John Farrell is the star of the TV show The Real Yield. <laughs> will we see that today, he's, he's, John? He's plugging my Bond show. You will see it later today. We will see it, see it later at 1 today. PM today, and it demand was so the great weekend. they shifted from Friday to Thursday. That's, that's correct. How they did that, but the fact <laughs> of the matter is the debate shifted in the last two weeks. Yeah, that's a fact. 
Yeah, and, and so I, I think back to the, the the sort of Fed dots and the Fed response, um, and it's and and to the recent sort of counter trend rally in in the ten year. Uh, you have this scenario in which folks were worried that. Uh, the inflation was moving too quickly and that the market was sort of trying to adjust to an environment where uh, the Fed's rhetoric uh, would change. Um, I personally thought Powell was was masterful uh, in his non-answers, which is what the Fed is designed. Which was surprising because we thought he, he might not be. <laughs> it was it was a uh, an old pro. Uh, you know, if you look back at uh, Bernanke's first press conference, a couple of them, and and same with Yellen, uh, yeah. they were not as skilled at saying nothing. <laughs> Yellen learned to say nothing over time. Yeah. Uh, but Powell did a very good job, and uh, the the inf- the recent inflation data has cooperated, and and I think this is where I, I would say the market is especially vulnerable right now. Is we have a small reprieve from the worry about higher bond yields and higher inflation. Because we got an NFP where um, non-farm payrolls, where wage growth was uh, uh, more contained, and then the CPI was also a a, a market-friendly number. Um, If those return as market worries, uh, given some of the other sources of of concern, I think this is going to be challenging. Because, John, one of the great themes of a Thursday before we do our reading through the weekend. And, uh, John, even though you're in America, are you off Monday because you're British? No, 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 no. You're going to work together. That's good. We're in it together. We're in it together. Okay. partnership. We are. Um, (laughs) Too much for you, Tom. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) But anyways, John, seriously, we're within the range. We're Look, not out of the range well, on, of yields. On the 10-year, we did break out of the range just in the last couple of days. And I thought it was interesting that we broke out to the downside and not to the upside. And the other thing that I think that's really been interesting about the quarter that we've just had, Dean, is that actually, despite the vol shock, people haven't taken out their expectations for hikes. And that's what's really played into this flatter yield curve story, because treasuries have acted as a shock absorber, yeah. but only further down the curve in a 10-year space. So yields have come in, yeah. but a two-year note has remained really, really rather anchored, and yields haven't come down at yeah, all. Exactly. No one is pricing out rate hikes despite the vol shock. So I guess we end up with a spread of uh, 50 basis points on twos, tens. How much should I read into that? based on the fact that the vol shock and the idea that actually no one's removing their rate hike expectations. Yeah, so I think the 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 10 spread is something we should all be watching. It's it's had a um, correlation with uh, future changes in in economic growth and, and a looser correlation with stock prices, but it's certainly something to uh, to focus on. The Fed is is commenting on it itself. Um, I'll tell you I look at the 10 spread at least for now as something that is has been a part of the um, bull market story. In other words, the Fed is tightening yeah, because it can. I'll go with that. And, and so here's what I would say, actually. One of, to me, you know, Tom, you asked me a lot about hedges. Um, the VIX is up at, you know, north of 20. These hedges are not cheap, right? They're, they're, they're not only, they're, they're difficult to carry. There's a lot of things that you're fighting when you buy a put on the equity option Strongly market. Strongly agree. <clears throat> so yeah. what I would say is, and this is, again, a, a focus for us, is try to find those hedges that carry better and have a couple of different ways to win. And so here, here's what I would say. Yeah. One of the things to really look at Please. Is, um, is, is the move index. Uh, so this is the Merrill Lynch VIX uh, index of, of bond volatility. This has retraced most of its increase from early February. Um, these options are actually quite cheap. And so if you want a real tail trade, uh, you can buy uh, essentially a call option on two-year bond prices. Um, basically saying things get so bad that the Fed actually, that the, the Fed's timeline of tightening actually gets disrupted. Interesting. No one's actually betting and, on that right and now. And what you touch upon there, which is so important, 
is if you're going to do a hedge, if you get protection, you have to pay for it. Yeah. And right now in so many areas, that really eats into potential total return. Right. And I, and I would say that um, this, this is what makes these risk transition periods so difficult is that um, there is a recency bias that, that everyone has. When you, you stare at a 22 VIX and you were staring at a 10 VIX last year and you say, wow, how could I do it now? How could I buy uh, a hedge that's yeah. so much more costly than it was? And so you get anchored to what was instead of looking forward in terms of how the risk environment is changing. Oh, very good. Dean Kernan, thank you so much. Macro Risk Advisors, greatly appreciate that. John Farrow and Tomke. John, why don't you bring in Kathleen Harris of Amy Bernstein, who, who's in the business of courage which recently has been increased and needed. She's in the business of Time Horizon. Yes. Kathy Fisher. I'm not I don't have that cuz I'm in the triple head. I'm in the triple leveraged all cash fund. Yes, which means so I don't, um, you know. nothing really matters to you just sit there. What, remind me again what are you paying to be in the One triple leveraged? Point, oh, oh uh, 18 basis points. 18 basis Eight, points. No, okay. no, 3 and 30. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kathy, it's great to have you with us. Talk to me about the importance of Time Horizon for a really noisy quarter. How do you just look through this and look ahead? I'm really glad you started that way. Time horizon is clearly the most important thing for anything when you look at your money in that if you're going to spend in the short term, of course, you've got to have your money very carefully, safely managed. But when you go out 5, 10, 20 years, which really most people are managing their money for, that's when you want to make sure you're taking enough risk. And risk means you're going to have periods like now where you have increased volatility. But even today, we have to remember volatility is coming back to more normal levels. It's not shocking. We just had a ridiculously calm period in 2016-17 when volatility was abnormally low, and now we're getting back to more realistic kinds of volatility. So with markets swinging all over the place, when the clients start calling you up and saying, Kathy, I'm scared, what are you saying back to them? Yeah. Well, actually, our clients are not because we've been talking about how low volatility was and the fact that it is now more normal. So you know, I think setting expectations and reminding the way markets do work long run is the most important thing for long-term investors because there will be ups and downs all the time. And this this period is unusual. We've got a lot of change. We talked about rates. We're talking about the, the risk of trade wars is something no one would have thought we'd be talking about in this in this day and age when globalization has driven the the, the, the strong economy of the past 20 yeah. years. So these are surprising events. Can I? This came up earlier this week and something Alliance Bernstein's famous for. Can I get a globalization proxy by buying U.S. multinationals, or do I have to go abroad to get that globalization? You still need to buy overseas stocks um, because part, part of the reason is currency, right? You do want to have currency exposure in your non-U.S. stocks as opposed to just buying a multinational. And obviously, all companies are going to hedge their currency risk as suits them. So you're, you're getting uh, multiple ways of getting currency exposure. But we would certainly argue very strongly you want to have stocks that are domiciled in foreign countries and, and listed on different markets. Yeah. And, so. and it's hugely different, Kathy, in that 
a few years ago, you bought the telephone company. And if you were bold, you bought the concrete company. <laughs> that was that was that was all international yeah, analysis yeah. And was. I think you know we've Telmex. Really, yeah, we'll buy that. Yeah, yeah. We've pushed clients to to uh, to have about a forty percent exposure to non-U.S. stocks. Four zero. Four zero. Um, wow. As you know, the world the world is uh, is moving towards fifty fifty. So uh, that would still imply an overweight to U.S. stocks, but certainly um, the world is no matter what happens with trade policy, the world is not going to get yeah. less small. This John, is this is before your time, but it used yeah. to be 10%. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> you know. Okay, Hong Kong, fine. Europe. Let's talk Europe. Yeah. The stock 600's down over yeah. the last 12 months. Yeah. I don't think many people in the United States actually realize that. If they'd listened to the amount of people that said, buy Europe, buy Europe over the last 12 mm -hmm. months, they might be underwater. Um, what is going on? Yeah. The economy's better, <clears throat> yet the equity market's <clears throat> underperforming. Yeah, it's it, it's it's a great question. Um, you, the European economy is doing much better. We yeah, you were talking earlier today about the German unemployment rate. So all parts of Europe and Southern Europe, right? There's there's it's a it's a very strong economy. But I but all the um, the worries, the concerns that are percolating here have certainly um, been ram manifested to some extent in a lot of the valuations of European stocks. Uh, we do still find them attractive, and um, the real issue, of course, is the is the strength of the euro, right? So that has hurt the perception of um, where things may go down the road. Um, and also, some companies have had less robust earnings than they would have had if not th for the strength of the euro. Are we going to get more euro strength? Because the, the, the story for the United States over the last 12 months and more has been dollar weakness. The last few days, the dollar has gained some strength. Yeah. But are we going to get more dollar weakness? Is that going to be the story from here on out? It's a very interesting question. Um, it's actually been surprising that the dollar has been as weak as it has been, given uh, the, the perception that U.S. rates would rise faster than the rest of the world in particular. I do think there's a little bit of political concerns baked into this. I yeah. think, uh, you know, we talked to some of our European colleagues. They often remind us that there's a, a concern that the U.S. is just a, a little less certain than it used to be, and that has caused some uh, lack of interest in owning a lot of the currency. Kathy Fisher, it's been great to catch up with you. Yes. In charge of Time Horizon at Alliance Bernstein. Thank Wealth you. and Investment Head, great to catch up. I have been waiting and waiting and waiting for this interview, the quiet story across the years of Middle East texts, the Harani, the history of the Arabs people, I think of Lacey writing about the Saud, House of Saud, is the Saudi kingdom. The author is Ali al-Shahabi. He has a really interesting take on what's going on, and it is an hour thrilled to have you in our studios. Do you, you. You, live, you live in Portugal right now? No, I live in Washington, D.C. You live in Washington now. Yes. Okay, that's you've moved on from that. The Saudi Kingdom is a must-read for anybody looking at this House of Saud, but this is a new House of Saud. What is the distinguishing feature of this charm offensive of Saudi Arabia versus the old House of Saud? Well, the old House of Saud was a an extremely um, conservative monarchy uh, ruled by old men. You know, the average age of the rulers was like 75 years yeah, old. Yeah. And one of the problems with that was that, you know, the, the elderly <clears throat> tend not to want to take bold steps. Mm -hmm. So important issues that had to be addressed kept on being kicked down the road. Uh, under the new Saudi Arabia, where you have a 32-year-old crown prince and chief executive. Right. Uh, he has, in the last two years, taken on a lot of key 
difficult issues and address them. Uh, whether that was the <coughs> conservative religious establishment and extremism, mm-hmm. where he's attacked that head on, whether it was empowering women, he's attacked that head on, uh, whether it was subsidies in the economy that were encouraging tremendous waste in energy and water. Uh, he again right. has, so he's attacked a lot of difficult politically controversial issues. Within the charm offensive of visiting here, visiting there, he's going to meet with Oprah, I think, at some point, and all that. Come on, there's a backstory here. There's got to be a le- the, the difficulty of bringing Aramco public. What's the backstory that a pro like you sees that's not covered within the media coverage? No, I mean, the backstory is that he is very interested in connecting with global business. Saudi Arabia is he wants to tell the business community that they're open for they're open for business and he wants to encourage it's them to that invest. simple it, it really is that simple there is no secret there is no secret sauce that's hiding behind anything um he wants to open up the country he wants people to invest he's connecting and personally he's connecting with the titans of industry and finance that's also good for him it, it provides him with exposure to what's happening mm-hmm. uh, and it allows him to explain not only explain but allows them to see the sort of enthusiasm and energy and drive that he has. We should just mention uh, on this idea of opening up the Saudi Arabian economy. Yesterday, the FTSE Russell said it's classifying the country as a secondary emerging market, making its equities eligible for broader indexes. This just sort of builds on this international interest in investing in Saudi Arabia. Are there any downsides politically? This is a very interesting example because Saudi Arabia should have been in, in uh, included in the indexes 10, 15 years ago. It's the largest market in the region, uh, but the, the authorities had been too slow and they had not uh, put why? in place the laws, etc. So again, under this new government, uh, that has been accelerated. So things that should have been done 15 years ago and 10 years ago uh, are being brought in now. Are there specific political issues with this? I mean, among among sort of the population. No, there are none, really. I mean, I think traditionally, traditionally, the bureaucracy in Saudi Arabia was afraid of opening up the markets for sort of old fashioned approach, uh, concerns of hot money coming in and things like that. So they delayed the structural changes that were required. It didn't have anything to do with uh, outside investors trying to assert kind of cultural norms on them or dictating what was okay uh, with no, the No, you can't no? do that okay. with the stock market, really. I, mean, you know. <laughs> I guess not, but no, I'm no, just no. saying. I mean, the stock market is a very, very, very um, uh, soft way of <laughs> investing in a market. You can go in and go out quite quickly. So I don't know. I think it was just really, you know, laziness on behalf of the bureaucracy, frankly. And and, yeah. and I mean, I, I, I started my career in the central bank and I remember the, this discussions. And, and, you know, the, Saudi Arabia should have been included in these indexes 15 years but ago. But culturally, have they moved on? At the end of your wonderful book, The Saudi Kingdom, you have appendices, and one of them is the Wahhabi movement. Yes. Has this new generational shift removed the family from an austere religious belief dating back to about 17? Well, it is, it is starting to temper that. It's tempering. Yeah, it's tempering because these things take time. Okay. You know, they're not something that you can... Uh, <clears throat> snap your finger oh, and, and, yeah. and do in, in one year. Yeah. But he has cer- the, the crown prince has certainly begun this process okay. of, of softening and, and also reducing the influence of the reactionary right wing, if you want if, to call it that, the religious establishment on daily life. Then how does President Trump fit into this? If the, if the absolute nexus at your Princeton is an analysis of Iran, Saudi Arabia is the, is the 
at the border of Iran and at the border of that debate, when you hear the president's comments on it and uh, Mr. Bolton's comments on it, how do you respond to that? Well, I mean, Saudi Arabia is very much on the same page as the White House on this. Uh, and, and that's why the relationship is quite close. Uh, the, the White House sees the, the risk from Iran in very much the same way that Saudi as Arabia and As the new generational leadership does. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman does this charm offensive tour, which is uh, under underway right now, how much support uh, with respect to sort of a backdrop of, of bureaucrats behind him does he have? And sort of, you know, is he is he engendering support politically at home as no, well? No, look, he's engendering support. But also, obviously, he's engendering resistance because change brings winners and losers. So mm. you know there are there are there are there are losers within the royal family. There are losers within the religious class, um, and there are losers within the business community. So that all you know th- there will be resistance, and there is resistance. But he seems to have really uh, overwhelmed that resistance. So th- there is no public manifestation of any resistance, um, and you know he's a very uh, determined, uh, powerful personality, yeah. and he's steamrolling everything through. Frankly, we look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you so much. Uh, for coming in this morning. Ali Shahabi uh, with us, of course, his book from a few years back, The Saudi Kingdom. Uh, Greatly appreciate uh, his attendance uh, this morning. Lisa Bramitz and Tom Keenan with us. He is the chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, a gentleman from the University of Pennsylvania, Kevin Hassett. Dr. Hassett, good morning. Oh, it's great to be here, Tom. And if you don't call me uh, Kevin, then I'm going to have to get rough with you. <laughs> Kevin, I'm going to I I I'm going to give you a massive victory lap here. Three quarter moving average of GDP is a Hassett Trump like 3.1 percent. There and is, the capital spending is soaring, just like we said, right? The, I mean, you remember all I, the stuff Kevin, you know, I'm, I'm equal opportunity. I'll tear Navarro apart when I have to, and I'll give him <laughs> credit when it's there. You are yeah. delivering 3% GDP. Everybody mm-hmm. on the street says we're going to ebb and fade as we move forward. Push against that. How do we sustain Hassett GDP? Oh, has it GDP? I don't know. It's Americans' uh, GDP. But what's going to happen this year is that there's going to be a surge in capital formation that is a supply-side push that drives growth higher without putting upward pressure on prices. And the capital formation is already visible in the advanced durables data. And it's a massive turnaround from what happened at the end of the Obama administration, because at the end of the Obama administration in 2016, capital spending was actually a negative for GDP growth, because it was such an anti-business climate. And so what you're basically doing is seeing in part a return to normal, uh, a normal attitude towards business, and in part a benefit of this large tax cut. All right, uh, Kevin, so move us forward with respect to spending. We just have passed uh, this tax cut. By most Mm -hmm. estimates, it will add more than a trillion dollars to the deficit. Is there oxygen in the room left for infrastructure spending? And uh, if so, is there anything concrete in the works right now uh, with respect to that initiative? 
Oh, absolutely. And the president's talking about that uh, today. Uh, in fact, uh, the president's infrastructure plan is very well developed. Uh, we have an economic report uh, that this Council of Economic Advisors put out yesterday that goes through uh, the opportunities uh, for infrastructure investment and the different ways that we could possibly do it. Although uh, something that you know we discussed on a call with journalists yesterday is that you know if we take have to take a victory in every bill. You know, and, and so, for example, we've got a workforce plan to make it easier to train people to work on infrastructure mm. projects. And if there's some bill where we could get the right. workforce plan in, then we're going to do it. But, but I mean, the president's right. preference would be, you know, a big, huge bill like the tax bill that solves it all at once. But right. we're going to be fighting, right. you know, in the trenches every day okay, Kevin, uh, to get every little bit of this infrastructure would plan. Would you just fix the potholes on West End Avenue over in the Upper West Side? That's all we want to this, get this goes done back here. To the thing, Tom, Tom, this is the thing that surprised me the most about our own CEA study, which is that yeah. like, what's the one thing that you have in your mind, the idea that the Obama administration did right? It's infrastructure, right? Because they had all these shovel-ready projects. They spent all this money on yeah, it. They talked yeah, about okay. it all the time, right? right? Okay. Do you know that the contribution to GDP growth from public capital went negative in the second Obama okay. term? And Kevin, I'm, I'm telling you that they dropped the okay. ball on it. And so you got these potholes everywhere because it's been allowed to rot. What are you going to do when CBO and <clears throat> others start modeling $1.4 and $1.5 trillion budget deficits. How are you and Mr. Kudlow going to respond to that? Well, you know, if I, I'm not sure that we expect to see anything like that, but I can tell you that the president was very disappointed in the spending increase. You know, I was uh, had dinner with Mick Mulvaney a couple of nights Why ago. Why didn't he veto the bill? He signed the know, bill. You know, he he uh, is going to take a much uh, stronger attitude next time, I'm quite sure. Wait, but then, uh, but 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 you're but right. But, that the, but mm-hmm. then how are we increasing spending on infrastructure? Oh, how, because we're cutting spending on other things, but we're like also what? the president's open. What are we going to cut spending on? The president, if you look at the president's budget, it's listed left and right. But the other thing that we right. listed in our report yesterday uh, is that the president's open to other fen- uh, funding opportunities. I know, but like Kevin, Kevin, increase when, the gas tax or user fees yeah, and things like that. Kevin, I, when you were in the think tank racket down in Washington, you had the Grand Banks 42 on the Potomac, and the name of the boat was Guns and Butter. That's what we just got. We just got a Guns and Butter fiscal policy. How are you at the White House going to respond when Maya McGinnis or someone like that, or critically CBO, say we've got a $1.4 trillion chronic deficit? What is what is the White House going to do with that? Well, well first of all, you have to recognize that we have a spending problem. It's something that we recognize. and uh, But there's also been, in the first year, uh, CBO estimates of increases in deficits associated with the tax bill that we just don't believe. Uh, and so that you have to sort of break it up into different components. Absolutely, we need to be tougher on spending in the future. It's clear in our budget, but not in the omnibus that just passed. And on the tax side, yeah. I think what's going to happen is you, you and I started uh, by your saying it's the Hassett economy. That's because we're getting a lot more growth, uh, right? Already, we're getting more growth than the critics, including the Can uh, you give me, tax committee said, right. uh, that from the tax bill, right? Kevin, I just and, got, and so that's going to give us more revenue. And, and okay. That's going to, Kevin, that's help with the I got 20 seconds is all. Give me a single point GDP number, which allows for your program to move forward. Is it 2.9% run rate? Is it 3.1% run rate? What is that number? 
Well, our program will work forward with whatever GDP growth is. It's not like the president's going to resign if all of a sudden there's one bad number. The fact is that in the economic report of the president, we go through all the things that President Trump's doing to lift uh, GDP growth. Mm -hmm. The average over the next year, uh, 10 years, is 3%. Uh, If there was something, you know, percent lower than that over the next three or four years, I'd be shocked. Okay. Kevin Hassett, thank you for the briefing. He's the chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.